Last week I mentioned um, a number of the more obvious ironies right at the beginning of the poem. The title itself, The Love Song of Jeff of Prufra, seems to set the lyric in the lyric tradition. Because as you know, I think you have some sense now, if you didn't before, that almost all lyrics have to do with love. Shakespeare, John Donne, Herbert, Wordsworth. It, Wordsworth. A lo- it can be a love of nature, it can be a love of God, in the way that we see in Herbert's poems, you know, the wind hover, poems like that that we've read. Um, Hopkins found God everywhere. Most of the lyrics in the lyric tradition have to do with love. It, they're expressions of the love of a person for a beloved. So we go into the subjective feelings of the poet, the lover, and and experience what he feels for the beloved. That's the, that's Not all poems do that, but that's at the heart of the lyric tradition. In some sense, we can say it defines it. So he... he he sets the poem in that tradition explicitly with his title, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. One of the ironies is, I mean, you can hear it. What does the, the name J. Alfred Prufrock suggest? It's sort of prudish, British, dignified, but in some ways a little bit laughable. It, it doesn't stand in the, in the um, epic tradition. It, it's, it, it, it has those qualities to it. It's, it's something like a prissy probably well-educated, what we in America we call a geek sort of person. The opening um, rubric, the, the epigram, is from Dante's Inferno. And I, I asked you all to look at it. I hope you did. When we begin the poem, we find that there are qualities to it that rem- are reminiscent of traditional qualities. It, the, the opening stanzas unfold in couplets, by and large. You and I, the sky, table, streets, retreats, hotels, oyster shells, argument, intent, question, what is it, visit. See, you can hear it. Now, what's interesting is, although it seems traditional in its rhyming couplets, they don't always carry through. I want to come to that in a minute. And they're not, the lines are not uniform in length. Because you know that most lyrics um, follow a metrical pattern. They're close to music. These, tre- these lines have varying lengths. So it's traditional in one sense, and it's non-traditional in another. It's innovative. He's doing something different, and I'll come to that. We went through the opening lines, and probably the greatest irony is the opening description, because he he describes um, an evening spread out against the sky like a patient etherized. There's something narcotic, um, drug-oriented in the opening. And when he describes the fog, this is in London, London, he describes it in terms of a cat, the yellow fog that rubs its back, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle, licked its tongue. Um, we didn't talk about that, but cats are very self-sufficient creatures. You know, they're not very communal. They, they're very self-sufficient. And some people think there could be something sinister to cats. That they're, um, dogs are openly affectionate. Cats are very removed and independent, typically. Um, but he gives us a very different feel. This is not like anything we've read in a lyric before. Not close to anything we've ever read. And then I asked you to just um, keep that in mind to see what you thought of Prufrock. We we went up to to the middle of here, can you do it? We went up to the middle of the third page. It's there, Doc. 
um, to the end of the first section. Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl, and should I and should I then presume, and how should I begin? So let me pick up there, middle of the poem, okay, about line seventy, the love song of Jaffa Prufrock. So, um, a little bit like Virgil, not quite. He's he's a person who greets his reader and asks his reader to go on a visit with him. The assumption that he's, that he's on an assassination, he's going to meet a woman somewhere, and as he contemplates this meeting, all of these thoughts go on in his mind. Okay, So it's a love song in that sense too, the likelihood he's going to meet this woman for something. And he invites us to go on this journey with him. Okay, And he said before, page two, do I dare? Do I dare? There will be time. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there's time for decisions and revisions. For I've known them all already. He's, he has this knowledge, likely, likely, of women. I've known the eyes already, known them all. The arms, the, 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 um, the hair that's very light. I've known the arms already, known them all, braceleted. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along the table, wrap about a shawl. So he's imagining these things, um, and we're um, we enter into his confidence because this is all presented to us. Okay, okay. Line seven. Shall I say I've gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves, leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floor of silent seas. It's an image of an impersonal creature. And the afternoon, the evening sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers. Stretch on the floor here beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, all this proper stuff, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? Though I've wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, you all know that that's John the Baptist. I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatless flicker, and have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. So we have the sense that he's building up these things by making comparisons between himself and John, this some great matter. Would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile? Does anybody know what this matter is right now that he's talking about? When we're done with tea and marmalade and all the proprieties, then what do we do? What's he talking about? Is it clear? I'm assuming. Where is it going? When, when a man is meeting a woman for a, in a, in a, a meeting, um, I mean, the implication is... Dinner and a date? <laughs> How about sex? Maybe, Thank you. Maybe and then. <laughs> Likelihood, sex. I'm assuming. I mean, it's, it's never said explicitly, but why else is all this building up in a sense of um, all that he has to go through and the way he... Um, exaggerates in his imagination the importance of everything. Would it have been worth it, after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain? <laughs> Some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile? 
to have squeezed the universe into a ball. By the way, those lines are from Marvell's poem to his coy mistress, where Marvell is writing a poem attempting to, to convince his mistress to go to bed with him. Those are lines taken straight out of the, the image of squeezing the universe, would, and there will be another way, one here in a second. Trolla towards some overwhelming question to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one settling a pillow by her head should say, that's not what I meant at all, that's not it at all. So he obviously brings not only some nervousness about the assassination, but some sense that he takes religious things seriously. He's already used the word prophet. He makes the allusion of John the Baptist. Um, and then to say to her, I am, I am Lazarus, come back, as if he has some important scriptural message to bring to this that seems so at odds with anything sexual. Would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this, and so much more? It's impossible to say just what I mean, but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves in patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile if one settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning towards the window should say, that's not it at all. That's not what I meant at all. So there's there's no way to see what's going on between him and the woman that he's imagining at cross purposes. Whatever's going on right now, it isn't a communion. There's there's not an enemy shared here. No, I'm not Prince Hamlet and was meant to be, nor was meant to be, I'm an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt, an easy tool. Deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed, almost ridiculous, almost at times a fool. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind, do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. We could spend a, a whole evening, probably a couple of evenings, truly going through this poem. It's so deep. I don't want to do that. I just wanted to introduce it to you. But let me let me offer a couple of thoughts and then go on because our work is with Dante. I think the power of this poem is that Eliot captured um, um, what one of the seminal um, aspects of the modern crisis. This the. The, the desire to have sex that's impersonal. I mean, the wasteland is, is full of scenes like that where he describes a secretary having sex and then, you know, clapping her hands and walk, you know, dusting her hands and walking away. With some sense of, of a religion behind that it is part of his psyche that he carries with him and he can't, um, he can't get rid of. Take a look at the rhyme scene for a minute and then I'll just touch on a couple of things and see if I can... Um, condense this in a few thoughts. 
Let us go then, you and I, when the evening's spread out against the sky. AA, table, streets, retreat, CC. You all following me, the rhyme scheme, AABBCC. But look at um, B. There's no rhyme matching for table. Um, to lead you to an overwhelming question, that's F. But do not ask, what is it? Uh, let us go and make our visit. So, although it unfolds with rhyming couplets, every, occasionally there's a word that doesn't have a matching word picking it up. Take the, the last stanza at the bottom of the page. Indeed, there will be time A, street B, company C, time A, B. Now look, time, street, companies, time, meet, A, B rhyme, A, B rhyme, right? Is everybody following me? A company, or windows panes is C, and create is D. They don't rhyme. Now, why does he do that? Let me, let me just suggest that. When you're in a traditional form of meter, what's the feeling you have when you hear a word that's picked up in a subsequent line that rhymes with it? Sing ring, time, time, wine. You know, you could go through, Chaucer does it with Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales are running couplets. What's the, what's the feeling that you feel when you hear something that musical? I'm asking Balance. this really seriously, huh? Connect. 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 Uh, Sorry? Imbalance. Balance. Balance. Yes. That things are in order. Isn't the feeling that we feel pleasure because we expect it and it comes? You hear it and then suddenly the same sound is picked up again? We take a pleasure in anything musical like that. Elliot knows that because he's got a really fine ear. What happens when you set out a couple of lines and suddenly there's nothing there? What kind of a feeling do you have then? Discord. Yeah. It's unfulfillment. It's, it's a disappointment. You don't hear it. There's something missing. See what Elliot's doing? He's working off of a traditional form. He's using these things so that we are invited back to a traditional past to experience the, the pleasure we take in it. And yet he introduces these things every once in a while that throws us off. Things are not as... They're not as we would want them to be. There's, a, there's an element of, what's, what's the word? Discord, um, dissonance. There's a dissonant quality to what he's doing. Just when the music starts to develop, suddenly you get a twang. But then you pay attention to it, must have a, must have a twang. Yeah, but in terms of the pleasure, what I'm suggesting here is that one of the effects that his poetry has is to call it back to a traditional form while he disappoints, while he, he, he makes us aware that things are not right, we can't expect the fulfillment of something. And he does that through the whole poem. Proof rock, do I dare, do I dare, for I've seen them all already. Now, imagine some guy, he's, he's going to meet a, with a woman, and on his way he goes, do I dare, do I dare, do I dare to disturb the universe? That's Marvell again, because Marvell's whole thing, to roll the universe into a, a, um, a, a ball and take his chances. He writes a poem explicitly inviting the woman to have sex with him. Okay, so that's, that's a 17th century poem. Um, he's using it. But instead of Prufrock saying, come to bed with me, here's this great poem, I've, we've got this man in his head with all these reflections. Do I dare, do I dare, do I dare to disturb? For I have known them all already, and I have known the eyes already, and I have known the arms already. What's the feeling you get about this guy to this point in the poem? 
I've known them all already, I've known them all already, I've known them all already. What's happening? Huh? If he knows them, what's the point? Yeah? What he's doing is already beginning to give himself excuses in his, in his head. I've known them all, I've known them all, I've known them all. Shall I, shall I say I've gone at dust through narrow streets and watched the smoke that... Shall I describe all the things I've... Because clearly he's a very sensitive person. Um, and would it have been worth it after all? And would it have been worth it after all? He repeats that again. What's he doing again? If we go through with this, would it have been worth it? Would it have been... So everything he does is in his mind and he's giving himself every reason not to go through with this and it raises a serious question whether he's capable of risking, number one, and more importantly, whether he's capable of love, whether he'll move that way. What he's doing is in his head. He's, he's absolutely a modern. He's like a modern Hamlet, except that's a misreading. Hamlet's got a lot of courage, but that's the tendency of people to read Hamlet, that he's in his head. That, that's not true, but he has that self-reflective quality. What he's doing is giving himself outs. Um, is he afraid of failure? Well, certainly, certainly an aspect of it, because he even says that, you know, when he says, um, and I am afraid, that line, in short, I was afraid, that's line, and I've seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And then more, it's impossible to say just what I mean. No, I'm not Prince Hamlet, I'm not this great guy, I'm not this, I'm not John. He measures himself against the scriptural reading of things. Um full of high sentence, but a little bit obtuse, at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool. I grow old. I... So we're watching a man deal with the world in terms of his intellect, and at the end it's going to be in terms of his imagination. And we'll, we'll see that. Now notice all of this, his, these meditations that, that he's passing on to us, because he's invited us into this meditation. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. They will put me on a pin, right? They will stick me on the wall. They will say how his hair is growing thin. So he's acutely self-conscious. If Prufrock walked into a room late, what would be going on in his mind? Compare himself to everyone else. And, and he'd say, everybody's staring at me. And they may not. I mean, that may be the last thing on his mind, or their minds, right? If you're in a, in a classroom and somebody walks in, if you're acutely self-conscious, you're going to think everybody's staring at you. I mean, there's a sort of paralysis. He's afraid to act. He's so, so self-conscious. So super reflective, huh? Insecurity. For, for sure. Um, for I've known them all, known them all. Um, I grow old. I shall wear the bottom line. So his images of in, in the room, the women come and go talking about Michelangelo. Prufrock exists in a very cultivated, aristocratic English culture where people measure themselves against high art. C.S. Lewis, who is English, talked about that in one of his essays. He says, it's one thing to practice piano to try to become better at something you love. It's another thing to practice piano because you want to become better than other people or show how cultivated you are. Because when you do something to show how cultivated you are, you become supercilious. You become arrogant. That, that's not the reason for taking... It's not the reason we should encourage our kids to take the piano. So you, you're better than other people or you're as good as they are. You, hopefully you do because you want them to love music or you know something. That's not proof rock. 
So he's aware of himself in terms of a, of a very refined culture. The women come and go. And drawing rooms, cups, tea, all the proprieties of this English world. So he set himself against it. And it, it, all it does is intensify mm -hmm. his um, self-consciousness. It, it, it adds another layer of paralysis to what he's doing. And then at the end, by the way, so I think the value of this, look at our culture today online. We've created a, a, a technical capacity to create a virtual world. That's our world. Media's done that. We, we, 90% of people's lives are spent in front of a tube with images. Get on a phone, we don't, there's no body. It's a voice. Go on the, on the web, it's a voice or an image. Mm -hmm. There's no body there. We live in a virtual reality in our imagination. Think about pornography and all, of, all that goes on there. We live, we live, the homosexual movement, the intellectual movement, we live in a culture in which um, the, the thing that people value more than anything else is aesthetic images, the beauty of something. We are captivated by, by the entertainment world in the, in the West and in America. So Eliot's writing right on the verge of that. When, when people are more concerned with an aesthetic image that they present, they will see me you know, doing one thing or another, they'll stick me in a pin, see me this way, that way. Um, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? He almost can't do anything because he's so self-conscious and aware of what other people will think of him. So he's, he's already caught in a world of aesthetic images. Very, very much. Right on, right on the verge of modernity. Notice how it ends. Shall I part my hair? Um, I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. Natural. Enough thing to do. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back. When the wind blows the water white and black, we have lingered in the chambers of the sea. That is, we live too much in a world of our own imagining. And I'm saying this, I, I think, I mean, it's certainly a danger that I'm aware of for all of us in our world. We've increased our powers of creating virtual worlds. They've got sex puppets now. I mean, I've watched some of the BB, I don't, I mean, I saw them, I've not watched them, but... A lot of movies today, a lot of what's going on in the BBC in England, and it'll come to America, is that they have these robots who, who are servants, and they will do whatever you want. So we've created a virtual world that will serve us. So we're not asking ourselves to conform to a reality. We're trying to create a reality that will conform to us. We're back in the desert with the Jews, with the golden calves, making a world conform to us. So we're living in our imaginations and evaluating the world in that way. I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the hair. The, oh, here, those of you who've done the Odyssey, the sirens. Think about the sirens, that enchanting voice and the skulls all around the seashore. They're so captivated by the beauty, they go and that beauty is mortally fatal. Okay, the sirens. Combing the white hair of the waves blown back. Think about the images of beauty here. Combing the white hair of the waves blown back. It's an image of the beauty of the sea. When the wind blows the water white. It all sounds so lovely and seductive. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls. 
wreathed with seaweed red and brown. How seductive, how beautiful. Till human voices wake us and we drown. If you live in that world, what happens when you come in contact with reality? Drown. So in the love, this is the great irony, in the love song, now think about this. What poet before Eliot had ever written a lyric poet about a figure who was damned? Name it. That's not a lyric. Yeah, you all follow me. Lyric poems are about love. You can see how radical this is. This is a scary poem. This man lives in his own world, and the last lines are shattering. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed rise. These are the something like the sirens. The beauty is so enchanting. So does, till human voices wake us and we drowned. This is about a person so caught up in his own world that he makes almost no human contact. If he does, shatters his world. So the love, the great irony, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is a landmark poem for the 20th century. You can see how it sets itself in the lyric tradition and how it absolutely criticizes that entire tradition. Now we're going to go on to happier things with Dante's Hell. <laughs> Let me stop before we... <laughs> Did you read it? I did. Can you go to the page? Can, can you find it? I'd like, since you're going to ask, bless your soul. No, no. I want you to read. I'm glad you did. It's 27, line 61. and If everybody could go there. So on page 142, I think. Is that right? No, no, sorry. Oh, yeah, you're probably there too. It's, yeah, it's 147. Read it, Tracy, can you? Slowly. <laughs> if I thought that I were speaking to a soul who someday might return to see the world, most certainly this flame would cease to flicker. But since no one, if I have heard the truth, ever returns alive from this deep pit, with no fear of dishonor, I answer you. Go ahead, read the next stanza. I was a man of arms and then a friar, believing with the cord believing with the cord to make amends, and surely my belief would have come true were it not for that high priest, his soul be damned, who put me back among my early sins. I want to tell you why and what and how it happened. Okay, now your question. Go ahead. How does that become the kind of you know the Entree into this poem. Good question. Do you have a thought about it? Uh, well, there's a there's a confiding, mm -hmm. and so and Elliot Prufrock is confiding in us, the reader, or bringing us along mm -hmm. because he fears no that we can't mm -hmm. hurt him or. I thought. If I thought that I were speaking to a soul who someday might return to see... This is scary. If you if you all take what my reading of the poem, that this is about a man who's damned, and I think it's pretty clear that it is. And this is the um, epigraph. This, in some sense, the epigraph is a, is a short summary statement of what the poem is about. It, it says something about the poem, so Tracy's question is right on. 
Um, why would Eliot have done this? If I thought that I were speaking to a soul who someday might return to the world, most certainly this flame would cease to flicker. He wouldn't say anything more. But since no one, if I've heard the truth, ever returns alive from this deep pit, with no fear of dishonor, I answer you. So the question is, why is why did he put this epigraph here? Why? Anybody else? Any thoughts? <laughs> well, what does it say about the damned? I mean, just in this instance, with um, what he's saying, Guido de Montefeltro. What's what does it say about him? <clears throat> I mean, first of all, he was a man of honor, of arms. He was looked up to in the world. He, 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 go ahead. He's still worried about what people think about. Yeah. He doesn't want this to get out. I mean, it would be a humiliation. So he's still so concerned about this that he, that he, he'll only speak on the trust that it won't get out, that Dante would take it back. So it's, it's, it's a pretty clear indication, once again, of how hell is a, um, a place of darkness and hiding, concealment. But, but get away from Guido. What does it say about us as readers? This is a little bit shaky to me. Um, what page was this? Sorry, what? Uh, One forty-eight. If I thought that I were speaking to a soul who someday might return to see the world, so doesn't that raise a question for us? whether we're going to see the light of day, that we've entered into an infernal world ourselves. Do we see it? Do we see ourselves? Most certainly the flame would cease to flicker. But since no one, if I've heard the truth, ever returns alive from this deep pit with no fear of dishonor, I answer. He, he's still so concerned about his honor that he doesn't even, we know this about hell. I mean, all the people, they don't see themselves very well. Um, he doesn't see how far away from being honorable he really is. He's in hell. He doesn't see it. But that's the correlative of that is um, <laughs> Prufrock has invited us into his world. How much is that world our own without seeing it will we return from it? So Eliot's the love, <laughs> the love song of Jafford Prufrock is... Um, it, I, I just extort. If you think about what he did, when you look at the lyric tradition, think and think about the romance, particularly somebody like Wordsworth. Wordsworth made everything seem nice and flowery. And not soon after Wordsworth's death, you got Eliot writing a poem like this. Imagine what it would have done to England with Wordsworth behind and Eliot, or or even the West. We may do the West. We may, we may have to do the waste the wasteland here just to. Shake you guys up even more. <laughs> I mean, any any brief comments before we go ahead? Let's let's do Dante. There's none. Um, I'm still shaking a little bit after doing this because I know this poem so well. And I hope everybody appreciates this. And he he is one of the three greatest poets of the 20th century. 
without a question. And the, the, his early poems turned the tradition, wrenched it off its course. It was going in a certain direction. In some ways, you can say it falsified love. It didn't look at love honestly. He went back, listen to this, he went back to Dante, end of the Middle Ages. Dante was the greatest influence in his life. You can't read his poetry without finding Dante everywhere. He carries Dante forward. He took that tradition with its plain loose with love, you know, making it a light manner, and did this to it in his opening poems, his early poems. So what he did was extraordinary, just extraordinary. Okay, Dante. Unless any comments or no, David, what's going on in your mind? What's your response? Your or sorry, Richard. Sorry, anything? Okay. Um, let's. I just, I'm going to do a, a quick review of what we did last week because I want to. I want to get to level eight, circle eight. Turn to page 75. I'm just going to do this very, very quickly. Remember that the we, we talked about this already now. Um, Dante comes to the level of hell. It's separated from the incontinent above. Right, I remember that. Um, remember, we're going to come to this in a minute because we're going to, I'm going to do, try to do something tonight that makes me a little bit nervous. But... This is, these are the sins of the lion, the sins of violence. These are the sins of the leopard. And remember the difference. The difference between them is the gates of these. This is the city. This defines the city, the walls of the city. This level is called the level of heresy. Because what's involved in that movement from the level of the incontinence, the, the several levels that make it up, to the next level is that boundary. And that boundary marks, indicates a greater involvement on the part of the intellect. The belief is more apart. So that um, the, the fundamental difference between the sins of incontinence and the sins of the violent is the difference between a weakness, the sins that are so strong that um, they make us aware of our weakness, that it's so hard to overcome them, and those sins that involve um, an act of will to do something. Um, so these are more noble, but they're more violent. Um, and we saw that it consists of three levels, um, violence against one's neighbor, against oneself, and against God. We left the level of um, the suicides um, with Pierre Dovania, you remember. And now Dante steps out onto the dry sand. Um, where he's going to meet the, the sins against God. Um, here, here they are. Um, Pierre de Vanya was the was the, um, the the sinner who took his own life. In this level here, he's dealing with the, those who blaspheme, those who commit sodomy, and those who commit usury. These are all sins against God, in one way or another. And I'll, I'll come to that because it, I don't think the connection is obvious, but we'll see how it is in a minute. Here he steps out on, on the sand. And remember, the one thing all of these have in common, the, the boiling blood, the boiling blood, um, the trees, and the sand, the burning sand and the burning rain, is that they're all sterile. 
This is an image of the wasteland. It's even called that in the section, the wasteland. What characterizes every one of these levels um, is a sterility. I'm going to come to that because it's so profound. It's a sterility. It's barren. There's nothing life-giving, anything going on here. On page 75, <coughs> Dante comes to Capanius, who's lying prostrate in the sand. He was one of the kings who attacked Thebes and was struck by lightning from God. And this, he's here because of his response. On page 74, at the top, the wasteland was a dry expanse of sand, thick burning sand, no different from the kind that Cato's feet packed down in other times. So this is the wasteland. Um, Dante sees him, and then he gets this response from Capanius on page 75, middle of the page. What I was once when alive, I still am dead. Let, Jup let Jupiter wear out his smith. Remember, the, the, the smith was the, um, um, the, the god of the forge. He, he's the, um, Hephaestus was the god in the Greek world. He was the blacksmith. The, he was the one who made things. Vulcan was the, the same god in the, in the Roman world. Let Jupiter wear out his smith, from whom he seized in anger that sharp thunderbolt he hurled to strike me down my final day. Let him wear out those others one by one who work the soot black forge of um, Jubello as he shouts, help me, good Vulcan, I need... So this is um, Jupiter shouting up for Vulcan to make his thunderbolts. The way he cried that time at Flegra's battle, and with all his force let him hurl his boats at me, no joy of satisfaction would I give him. I won't give God the satisfaction of being defeated. My guide spoke back at him with cutting force, if never heard his voice so strongly before. I knew. O Capanius, since your blustering pride will not be stilled, you are made to suffer more. No suffer more. No torment other than your rage itself could punish your gnawing pride more perfectly. There's a perfect example again of what a, of what a contrapasso is. It's our own sin that punishes us. We have no control of it. We're trapped in it. That's what we wanted. That's what we get. Um, I've said this before, but I'll just say it now. We're going to meet a couple of characters when we get into the level of fraud. What we see in hell remember is souls who have turned away from God. That's why they're here. God didn't put them here. It's so clear. God did not put these people here. They're here because of their own choice. That's what they wanted. That's what they've got. They wanted those things more than God. Here they are. They've got it. What he reveals more clearly, I think, than anybody we've seen up until this point is what I mentioned last time, that underneath every human soul is this lawless spirit of defiance. After the fall, we want our way. So inside of every human soul is this spirit of defiance. I'm going to have my way. I want what I want. That's what I'm going to get. Um, here we see um, a soul blaspheming. I mean, you, you can't get a clear of defiance. Keep, keep hurling your thunderbolts. It's just going to keep, they're going to keep tormenting him, and he wants more. I mean, that's, that's the nature of hell, so... Turn to page 83. This is where we left off last time. Remember, this is um, Brunetto. You've already heard my reading about this, but let me give it to you. because Remember, Brunetto was one of Dante's teachers. He loved him, respected him. He still does here. He shows him a tremendous respect. 
And then when their conversation is over, Brunetto runs off. Remember, this is the sodomites. These are the sodomites, the homosexuals. Um, and Brunetto has, is intelligent, articulate, proper, um, um, a keen mind, and he wished the best for Dante. When they're done with their discussion, Brunetto runs off on page 83. Remember my trezor where I live on. This is the only thing I ask of you. He, he, he got this, the irony is kind of irony, isn't it? He cares more about his own book living on, having an eternal life, than he does with his own eternal life. God. Oh, God. It's like somebody saying, make sure the spirit of my career you take back with you. That somebody would care more about his career or work or than loving God. He just doesn't see that it was partly that that put him where he is. Then he turned back and he seemed like one of those who run Verona's race across its field to win the green cloth prize and he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. I described to you how, I don't know how to do this, how frightening that is to me because if you have any sense of wanting to be the first one in, you know, to beat other people if you're competitive at all, and that's what drives you, that's what you take into hell. And, and to, so for me, to me it's one of the scariest images in hell because it shows that what happens in hell is just exactly an extension. It's what we want, it gets carried over, except there we don't have the consolations of our illusions. There we see it for what it is. I mean, we, we suffer the punishments of it for what it is because they don't see what it is very well at all. Well, is it wanting to be first or wanting to be first at the expense of others? Probably both. Probably both. Yeah. I'm going to get to that in one second. Jacopo on page 84. Um, just a number of important lines here on page 84 in the middle of the page. From the clothes you wear, you seem to be a man from our perverted city. 84. This is Jopoko. Um, Wait for these are shades that merit your respect. That's Virgil saying to Dante. Wait and talk with these people. I would suggest you run towards them for it would be more fitting. Um, these are people who are very well respected, uh, very knowledgeable, uh, very, uh, very professional in what they're doing. But look at his description of them, bottom of 84 and top of 85. The three together form a turning wheel, just like professional wrestlers stripped and oiled, eyeing one another for the first best grip before the actual blows and thrusts begin. Why is that an appropriate description here? We're at the level of the sodomites. They're very proper men, but he's describing them in terms of Remember, they're all circling, these, this group of sodomites. They're circling. Just like professional wrestlers stripped and oiled, eyeing one another for the first best grip before the actual blows and thrusts begin. God, Dante's amazing. Just amazing. Tracy, did you, you look like... What? Did you have a thought? Oh, well, you asked it's because it's violent. Hmm? It has a physical violence. Yeah. I think is what he's doing is showing what he thinks is at the heart of the homosexual soul. That because what's at issue here, remember, is the um, infertility, the sterility of this group. So, um, 
Dante believed very firmly that, that we, had a, we have a nature and that like God we were meant to create. It's a part of our... But when you remove the sexual act from the act of creation, then you're in danger of using another person as an object. And so it's described, I think, subtly in terms of sexual, the sexual act that would take place after. Wrestlers stripped and oiled, eyeing one another. Because that's what, the, the image here is that that's what a, a sex, if you, I don't, not been, but I, I might, when I imagine, try to picture a homosexual bar, Men are going there to pick up other men. They're, they're going there principally for a sexual act. Um, so eyeing each other, seeing, um, you know, beneath the, the, the outer proprieties, the form, the decorum, the professional look, whatever it would be. So it's like, once again, unmasking, looking below the surface to see what's really going on. Um, Jacopo talks with him down below. I who shared this post of pain with them was Jacopo Rustichucci, and for sure my reluctant wife first drove me to my sin because she denied him sex, he went elsewhere. So it's his wife's fault. Um, go on over, we just, we looked at, um, remember, the griffin comes up, and Virgil goes to talk with him, and while he does, Dante um, talks with the users on page um, 91. I carefully examined several faces among this group caught in the, rain, the raining flames and did not know a soul, but I observed that around each inner sinner's peck, neck, sorry, a pouch was hung each of a different color with a coat of arms and fixed on these they seemed to feast their eyes and while I looked about among the crowd I saw something in blue on a yellow purse that had the face and bearing of a lion um, while my eyes continued their inspection I saw another person's res there that is they're all known he can't make out their faces but he makes out the emblems that they carry okay why why are they faceless, identityless? Um, and why are they here? We saw blasphemy against God, and we saw blasphemy against our sexual nature, and now we're seeing, uh, or rather, violence against usury. Why are they here, and why are they faceless <coughs> or identityless, except for their, except for their? Um, what do you call it there? Good arms. arms, yeah, is thanks. Hmm? Is it objectified? You're seeing people for what you want them to be, or they're faceless, there's no... Or that's they're the not one. a person, right? They're a thing, or they're something to be used. That's what they made themselves. Yeah. Not that, but that's, that's what they made everything in life, and that's what they've got here. What's the fundamental... The, the, it's interesting that he puts the sodomites and the users next to each other. In these groups, in this point, in the burning sand, this, this image of sterility. Why does he put them here? What what does sodomy and usury have in common? This would have been traditional Catholic thinking. Still would be today. It wouldn't be see, probably wouldn't be understood like this, but it still is. And how does it differ between the sodomite and the usurer? 
Like, yeah. I'm kissing. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, you're really... The violence involved, remember this is the level of violence, the violence involved is this. Sodomites take a natural impulse that should be creative and make it sterile. Right? The users take something that's sterile, money, it's not procreative, and make it breed. So both of them, this is the point, both of them are out of tune with God's nature. So when you think, I mean, I'm sorry, think about what industries do today with art, because Dante would have not made a distinction between art and industry. It's what we do with our natural resources. That's the word we use today. What are, what are natural resources? How many com companies use natural resources in a way that's violent or that's against nature or even the communities around them? You know, we hear about these cases all the time. Additives. Hmm? Additives. Sorry? Additives, when they put them in... Things like, I mean, pollution, I mean, you can go on and on and on when companies do all sorts of things with gases or something that, that exploit nature and they become so greedy um, um, that they, they commit an act of violence against nature. And, and remember, to do that indirectly is to commit an act of violence against God because he made it. Guy, do you want to give that example that you were describing to me the other day? Can you tell everybody what I was shocked to hear this, but it's a good. You think this is fits this example? I mean, yeah. Is that, yeah go ahead. Can you? It would. Um, I'm just reading a book. It's about the Osage Indians, and it was in 1920s. They were the most um, rich Indian nation because what happened is they were driven from Kansas into Oklahoma, and the government kept pushing them into um, into you know a right. uh, into a reservation right. so these people on purpose they chose this land that they thought the white person wouldn't come so this was a land where rocks and you know no one would actually come to uh, farm the land so well they found oil underneath so Within a span of three years, I'm down to 24 murders. But then you have <coughs> Paul Getty and all these people coming in, all these oil men, Gulf, and you know, just you know, looking for oil. So I haven't read the whole book. I've only read part of it, but it is amazing. Yeah. And then you know, it's the birth of the FBI and how they come in. And but it is all about money, not thinking about really raping the land. And, and the, the people, people who are, yeah, right. And the people, right. because, you know, that was, you know, think about the inheritance that they had, the land that they had was huge, and how we kind of yep. pushed them, pushed them. And we know that that story is repeated over yeah, and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, what I, I love the movie, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Michael Clayton. It's a really, really fine, same thing. It, it, it's, it's such a, in my mind, it's a special movie. It, it opens with this guy reflecting on what he's describing as something almost like a disease taking over. What he's describing is a culture becoming infected by wealth. And what we see are these companies committing all these crimes in order to gain this money. And we know that that's not an uncommon. I mean, it's as sad as it is that it goes on. But anyway, that's what... That is George, George Clooney? Right. Right. I like that movie. It's really... Michael Clayton. Mm -hmm. It's a scary movie, but... Um, What's at issue for Dante is that sodomy and usury are, are like 
um, variations on the same thing. The sodomist takes what is a natural impulse that should lead to something creative, makes it sterile, cuts it off, and the users take something that's artificial and makes it um, multiply, fertile, to breed money. People, people do things in order to get wealthy, even at the expense of other people. So, Okay, it's at this point that Dante and Virgil get on the back of Garion. And you remember, Garion is um, three-natured. There's the parody of the Trinity again. He's got the head of a man, a very good-looking, I think gentleman. I can't remember Dante's description, but um, um, who's got the the uh, body of a beast and the tail of a reptile. So he's an image of what they're about to meet at the at the eighth the eighth level in the circle of the fraud. So that's where we're going to go now. Before we do. I want to do this, and this is going to be really risky. Okay. Last week, I introduced the notion that hell is the anti-city. It's the opposite of heaven. If Christ offered himself on the cross for man's salvation, he did it because he knew, God knew, that man could not atone for his original sin against God. He committed his sin against God, only God. How can man give satisfaction for a crime he committed against an infinite being? Only an infinite being could have given satisfaction, could have answered a question of justice. So God, the only way, the only way, this is, by the way, this is the, this is the important meaning of Canto 7 in the Paradiso. We'll come to it then. That's the argument, Dante. That's the argument that St. Thomas makes. God could have either wiped away the sin or held everybody damned. He chose instead to take a middle course because to wipe away the sin, I think we went over this before, if he just wipes it away, <laughs> people are going to keep doing it. I mean, what's, it's not gonna, And not only that, it derogates, it takes away from God's goodness that he created this great thing. Um, he gave man free will and an intellect. So if he just wiped it away, it would be a fruitless act, really. So between those two options, God chose a middle way. What he did um, was allow his son to, to go to a cross, take on our, on our nature, because without doing that, he wouldn't have answered our sin. Um, so I talked about the city in terms of the difference between the New Jerusalem and the city of Dees. And we talked a little bit about the city. Remember, the city comes into existence. Enoch's the first founder in the Bible after Cain's exile. His son Enoch founds the first city. So the city comes into, it didn't exist before. The city comes into existence in man's effort to live without God. Mark! Even if some of you may disagree, I'm assuming that the, the Bible is based on reality or wouldn't have a value for us, but if there's difference, let them be for a minute. Enoch is the, is the founder of the first city. It comes into existence after man separate, is separated from God. It, it's, it's an expression of man's attempt to be sufficient to himself. So in the city, the, na the, city, the nature of the city has always been um, double-edged. In the city, we see the very greatest things that man's capable of doing, the most extraordinary things, almost godlike. 
and the most the vilest things, the worst things about. Um, they're both there. So the city has that dual nature. Here, what we see is the perversion of everything good. If the center of the earthly city is Christ giving himself for others, that is, God offering his own life as an expression of his love so that others might live, then you'd expect that hell would be the opposite. And when we get to the bottom of hell, that's what we're going to see. Satan's going to be eating three people. It's going to be a parody of the city. He's, he's eating them. Why is that important? Because it's the absolute opposite of God off to you eat of this bread or wine. So at the center of the heavenly city is God offering himself so that others may live. At the center of hell, when we get to the bottom, we'll see Satan eating three people. Judas, Cassius, um, Brutus. Okay. So the city here is a parody. What we're seeing here is a parody. In hell, we see people using other people as objects to satisfy their own appetites. So wherever people are paired in hell, it's a parody of love. It's not an example of love. It, it's the reverse image of it. It's people using other people for themselves. The, the most innocent example of it is Francesco with Paola. I mean, the very opening scene in, you know, in the first level of sin proper is Francisco and Paolo um, in an adulterous love affair. And they're, they're going to be in that position eternally. As we move through hell, we'll see a number of pairs, figures, using each other to gratify their own lust, their own hatred, their own vengeance. I mean, whatever is being acted out on the sin. But it couldn't be farther away from love. In fact, it's the opposite. It shows people using other people as things. Um, now why, why is this important? Why am I bringing this up now? I'm going to introduce a topic that's, that's going to be really heady. So buckle up just for a few minutes, you guys, okay? If we're made in God's image and God is a trinity of persons, then the most natural thing for us should be to love another person and be loved. That's in our nature. You know that, how different that is from Milton, because Milton showed God was solitary and Adam was solitary, God's alone. For the Jews, God is solitary. For the Islams, the Muslims, God is solitary. For the Christian, God is um, three persons. It's one nature, three persons. So at the very essence of Godhead is a love given and returned, a knowledge offered and a knowledge returned. That's at the center of our God, those should be the defining qualities of our own nature. To love another person, to know another person. To be loved, to be known. Now, Dante believed in the Trinity, and the Trinity was one of the informing principles of the entire Divine Comedy. So if you take a look at the whole Commedia, you know that it's divided into three canticles. Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, yeah? So it's divided into three canticles. And, and by the way, interesting thought, it lines up in lots of ways with the ancient Greek world. Olympus, the heavens, the earth where mortals carried on their strife, Achilles with his battle and Odysseus with his homecoming, and the underworld. So even the ancients had these intimations of a Trinitarian structure to reality. But we've got three canticles. 
Every canticle has nine levels. It, it, it's the multiple of three, three times three. Um, we've got nine levels in the Inferno. We'll have nine levels in the Purgatorio. There will be the um, the ex. What is it? It's the world. It's the excommunicated. There's two levels prior to Purgatory. Sorry, excommunicated and another level that's just prior to that before they get to the gates. And once they get to the gates, there's seven levels. So there's nine levels in total in Purgatorio. And you, when we get to the Purgatory, you'll see that those the seven levels of, of sin properly, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust, those themselves are divided into three parts. You'll, you'll see them when we, when we get there. The heavens are divided into nine. Nine... Um, um, nine heavens, nine orbits, nine planets circling the sun. Um, so, um, so the the principle of the Trinity informs the structure of every single work: the Inferno, the Purgatory, the Paradiso. It informs Dante's use of figures. Service was a three-headed dog. When we get to Satan, he's going to be he's got three heads. The Medusa, three heads. Um, and we'll see that carried through the entire Commedium. One of the clearest indications of the presence of the Trinity in the poem is something people overlook all the time. It's the Terza Rima rhyme scheme. Watch this. Um, it's three line stanzas with interlocking rhymes. So the, 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 the rhyme schemes go like this. A, B, A. B, C, B. C, D, C. C. It'll, go, it'll go like that. So the Terza Rima is an interlocking rhyme so that the middle line always sets up the rhyme for the next stanza and it carries forward. Here's the interesting thing. This is where I'm going. This is sort of amazing. Um, as an image of the Trinity, it's unchanging. It's fixed. It's a Terza Rima while it's moving forward. That in itself captures one of the paradoxes of God. God is all love. There's no desire in God. None. He's complete in his self. What he feels for humans is love, not desire. We desire because we're lacking what we want. Right? I hope. God's love. So in God, there is a stillness, a rest, while that love is at work doing whatever he does to try to draw us to him. Okay? So there's this paradoxical nature to the Trinity, to God himself, and it's in our nature. One of the, um, one of the, St. Augustine came up with something like 20, 25 different kinds of examples of the Trinity in his book called um, On the Trinity. Um, one of them involved the memory and I can't remember it right now. For me, the, the one that St. Thomas uses and the one that I think is the most compelling is, is this. The clearest evidence of the Trinity in the human person is we are. God defined himself as, what did he say to Moses? I am. I am that am. That's what he said. I am that am. You could say, I am that is, that, that is being, because God himself is being. There was nothing before him, nothing after. Nothing created him. He's uncreated. 
So Christ is uncreated. I mean, he's begotten. He, the Father's image of himself and the Father. So the Father's known as being, I am. Every human being is known by his being. He is. Okay? At the same time that we are, we know, we have a mind like God, and we love. We have a will like God. So the Trinity is inherent in our very nature. It's a structure of our own being. We are, we know, we love. Hope, hopefully, we reciprocally are to another. We're known by another, say if we're in a marriage, and we're loved by another. So that principle of um, reciprocity, of mutual being together, of knowing one another, of loving one another, is in our very nature. That's inherent in our nature. It's who we are. Where we vary from that, the whole modern, mo the whole modern mindset is: I'm an individual. I'm alone. I'm by myself to be self-sufficient. Couldn't be more contrary to the idea of a trinity, trinity of persons. Okay. <coughs> by the way, we saw. Did I make this clear? The trinity, or I mean, the inferno itself has three parts. We saw it in continents. The violence and the fraud, right? Yeah. That even there we saw the. Okay, this is where it gets tricky. Do I want to go here? <laughs> okay. I want to hold on, everybody. This is going to get tough. I'm just warning you here. Suzanne shaking her head already. <laughs> um, one of the parishioners in the Friday morning class, I think you all, Fred and Francis. Fred said that he was taken by something going on and he was puzzling over it. I thought it was such a wonderful question. He said, so often Dante will recognize the sinners in hell. He'll, he'll say, I know who you are, over and over and over again. And his question was, how can he recognize them? The body's gone. I thought it was a wonderful question. The body's gone. How does he recognize them? It's really... In the middle of the purgatorio, the middle of the purgatorio, Dante's going to tackle the very center of the Commedia. Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. At the very center of the Purgatorio, the very center of the poem, Dante's going to tackle two questions. One of them has to do with man's free will, and the other has to do with the relationship between our body and soul, because they're inseparable for Dante. We'll get there eventually. And he said, how, how does he recognize them? Body's gone. That question, in my mind, was a reflection of one of the problems of the modern world after Descartes. Because after Descartes, the, the body is separated from the soul. That's one of the divisions that occurs then. Don't, what Descartes said is, we start with what's the ideas in our head. That's what we know. St. Thomas would have said, we start with what our senses deliver. This is Remember, this is Aristotle and Plato. We've already gone through this. Aristotle, St. Thomas would have said, we sh knowledge begins with what we know with our senses. We receive something, we put it in our minds, and our man abstracts it and does things with it. Descartes said, no, what we begin with are ideas in our heads. And he cut himself off from the body and everything the senses deliver to the body. That's the schism we've been living under for 400 years. Okay? Now, quick lesson, if I can. Um, Aristotle, St. Thomas would say, our body is what individualizes us. 
Now hold on to this. Um, the soul and body are one, indistinguishable. They are one. They are one. Um, the soul is the form of the body. Hold on to this. The, the soul is the form of the body. But the body is what individualizes each one of us. So, for example, if you took a button off a factory line, what, and they had the same form, the same template, what would distinguish one, bu one button from another? No, it, it's the wood that it came from. It's different matter. Same, same form, right? Different matter. Different part of the tree. They're identical. Same, same with the blouse. You know, the blouse is identical. It comes from a different sheet. So what individualizes each one of us is our, is our body. Every one of us in this room has the same form. We are humans. We're different from horses, animals, angels. What distinguishes each one of us is our bodies. They individualize us. And they can't be separated from the soul. So what happens when, the, when we die? And the soul and body are separated. There's no way in which the soul can go to the next life without the imprint of the body because it's what made it. So we go into the next life, there's no way we can't see each other as we are. That's who we are. That's our identity. And what will happen when, at the, at the you know this from Dundee, what happens on the day of resurrection when the bodies are returned? We will receive a, um, a glorified body, but obviously it's got to be in keeping with our own identity because that's who we are so here's the importance of it I mean th this is not small if Christ did anything he glorified the body by taking on our human nature he said it's a good thing the body what's the typical attitude of moderns towards the body Calvin's attitude towards the body bad. really bad <laughs> it's a horrible thing it's disgusting the greater part of the, the reformation took that you know that from our work took this attitude that the body is this depraved thing Calvin hated it. Catholic response to the body? Sacred. Christ entered our body and glorified it. We're supposed to take a pleasure in our body. We have to take care. We all know we can do lots of bad things to it. But So this question about body and soul is not a small one for Donnie at all. It's, it's important enough that he's going to take it up again in the center of the poem. Okay? I want to introduce it here. Go ahead, Carl. Sir. Go ahead. I would have a much easier, I, to, for me to understand, go, go. response to Fred's question about how, how could he tell that these were people if they didn't have a body? And I, I don't think it's inconsistent with what you just said about soul. Glad to hear it. If he can't communicate with these people, how is he communicating? Isn't he then communicating with their soul, with what's not the body, yeah, but it's what's, what's left. It's what's always there. And it's like, you know, you may look like yourself, but you have your thoughts, you have your ideas, you have your ideals, you have your morals, and it's those things that are part of the soul, at least they are to me, and that's what Dante is communicating with when he's talking with these people yeah, who but don't have a physical body. Yeah. The only difficulty I have with that is that it doesn't give you a, an image of a person. You and it I can. It doesn't we, give you the image of what they look like in our terms today. Right. That's my. That's what I'm trying to protect right now, because you and I can have the same. You and I can share the same notion of a table, mm -hmm. 
And on that basis, we don't distinguish each other at all. What finally distinguishes us is our body and soul that whoever is there combined in this world. That's who we are. Right. Our we can't separate our body from our soul, even though the modern mind does everything it can to treat it like it's... A, because you've got, you got idealists on the one hand who say you've got a box with a spirit inside of it. That's Cartesian. And those people who are scientists who say you got a box and that's all there is because everything in it is not there's nothing spiritual in there it can be explained as nerve energies or I mean they're just materialists they say that's all there is in this body so the modern mind tends to break down into two extremes you know we're either in a schism or we're just nothing more than matter it's like a box like a computer the whole artificial intelligent movement is based on that premise we're like computers we can recreate ourselves make a make a robot that can do exactly what we can do. That's their assumption. Yeah. Dante is saying, no, the body and soul are our nature. That's who we are. It distinguishes us from animals. It distinguishes us from angels. And that's not a small thing because God made us corporeal creatures. That's what we are. We, the modern world doesn't believe we have a nature. Dante does. I'm going to give it right now, Doc. That's where I'm going. Um, so here's what St. Thomas said on, um, on this issue. He said, this is St. Thomas, the soul is in the body. By the way, St. Thomas, this is how important it is. St. Thomas in the first book of the Summa has a whole section on body and soul. It's who we are. It's who we are. How we know um, comes from our very nature. That we have bodies, we're not angels. Dante's, um, this is a quote from St. Thomas. The soul is in the body. I love this. The soul is in the body. Not as contained by it, but containing it. The soul is the form of the body. Um, and I don't want to get into this right now. Somebody's going to ask the kind of question a scholastic would have asked. Them. So what happens when you cut your arm off or you lose a leg? Does, you know, I don't want to go there. But it's the soul is still there. When you go into the next life, that's... By the way, Father came to me one day. He was troubled because he was talking, I think, with a mother who had a um, handicapped child um, and was troubled. My response to Father was immediate. I mean, I believe this. Um, I said... She should be happy. She knows one day, if she's in heaven with her son, she's going to see her son Without the wheelchair, right? fully formed. Our, our belief is grace perfects nature. No child will go into eternity without having the full form of whatever that original form was. Our kids, our, our youngest daughter-in-law, our, our Jonathan, our youngest son, and his wife, Emily, they, she miscarried. She was devastated by the miscarriage. Um, and thought enough about it that she wanted to give their child a burial service, so they did. I mean, they had a mass. They performed a mass for it. They went to a gravesite to bury it. I told Emily, I, and I wouldn't say this if I didn't believe it, be happy. One day, oh God, it's going to be One day, when you get to heaven, a surprise is going to be waiting for you. You're going to see that child grown up. He will know who you are. You will know. If heaven means anything, it means... All things come to their completion. Grace will perfect everything. So whatever handicap, whatever disorders we carry, they won't exist there. Because 
the, the, the soul is the form of the body. It's a, when, when, a, when a mother conceives, I don't care what the moderns say, conception starts. Everything in that child is already present. It will only become that, if it's, unless it's cut off, it will only become more and more of what was given to it in that conception. If something happens to that child and he dies at 12, when he gets to heaven, you think God, who brings things to their completion, is not going to... It's not going to happen. That's the nature of the soul. But heaven is about getting to God is the only thing that matters. Heaven is not about your relatives, your parents, your children, or anything else. That None of that matters anymore. It's all about God. I mean, it's just not going to be important. Oh, God, Mark. Hold on, hold on, hold on, because I just, hold on, I want to respond, I want to respond. If, God, hold on, hold on, hold on, if, your goal is to get to God, that's all, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, as somebody who takes education really seriously, you know how seriously, if God is Trinitarian, if God is Trinitarian, and there's a reciprocal shared love and knowledge between them, then it's in our, if we're made in the image of God, we're made to do that, to share in it. We're made to love somebody and be loved. That's in our nature. So, so if we're going to return to God according to that nature, yes, it's right to say only, only God meant, except that isn't what only meant. God made us. You'll never convince me that he doesn't want him with us with him, that he doesn't love us. Who will get to God without completing that nature? Hell is showing us a condition in which people deny that they have a nature, do anything about it, and that's where they are. Purgatory, we're going to see people are doing everything they can to help develop that nature that they have so that they can return to God. Because, but because what, what happens there is not just God, it's God and all of his creatures. He made us in, as a, in a pure act of love. He's asked us, Christ's commandment is, Christ didn't say, you don't think it matters. He said, this is my commandment to you. Love each other the way I have loved you. And he did that knowing that's the way to God. So, so is Dante infallible? Ask, go behind, what's behind that question? Well, the, when you said a minute ago, you were talking about the person who had the question on Friday, right. how would we recognize him? Were you talking about purgatory or hell? Is that different from heaven? You recognize them in heaven because it's completion, but in hell, the purgatory, you can't recognize them? No, I was... not completion. No, because he does recognize them all the time. Dante does. What I'm saying... Wait, what I'm saying is... It, this is Dante and St. Thomas. And this is our church, by the way. This is the understanding of our church. That we have a nature. We're not... Car- the church does... The church sees Descartes as schismatic in a way. Because according to the teachings of the church forever, going back to its beginning, human beings are different from angels, they're different from men. We have a body and a soul. That's who we are. And because that's so, his question was, how do they recognize them? And I thought it was a good question. Because even if the soul's gone, you're in hell now. They don't have their bodies. How does Dante recognize them? He can recognize them because they still carry the imprint of their bodies. How can, their souls can only take that form. That's who they are. When they get to purgatory, we're still going to be watching souls without their body. One of the great ironies of the Divine Comedy is Dante's the only one in a body. And it makes it comic the whole time. He stumbles, he trips, he sinks, he cries. You know, um, Everybody else is lacking a body. But we know the belief at the center of the Catholic Church is 
We are corporeal creatures. That's our nature. God made us that way. We are separated from our bodies at death. On the final day, our bodies will be returned. That's at the center of the church's teaching because we're corporeal. When that day happens, and we've already seen it, those in paradise will receive a glorified body. They'll still be the same people, but something's going to show a grace in whatever happens. And those people in hell will be punished more perfectly when we've already we saw that with Pierre Dovania and everybody else, that their punishments will increase because their bodies will return. So whatever they did in their bodies will come back to haunt them. Because we're not angels. We're humans. See, I always thought one of two things. We were humans on a spiritual journey or spirits on a human journey. Except you're saying it's neither one of those. It's a combination. It's both, yes. The danger is if you separate it like that, if you... You're in a schism again. I mean, you've split it up. By the way, just as, I mean, Chesterton says that all the... This, he said, Lucifer's sin was spiritual. Lucifer, it's intellectual. It's a spiritual pride. He said, the, the greatest sins for a human are, are... I mean, the greatest sins are tend to be spiritual, intellectual, like Satan. Um, we have a body. Um, the danger for us is trying to be like angels and deny our body place there's dangers for us when we do that i think everybody knows that but here let's go on the the point that i'm making here is is the terzarima is a wonderful example of the trinity in a very veiled way it's the same stanza form but it's forward moving so it's still and moving in in an indirect way that's like god now, hold on. I know this is... But hold on. So, well, if I could read... I'm just not a good... I wish somebody who... Here's the, here's the opening line. I'm going to just... This is the opening line. I, I'm not a... I don't know ancient Italian. Nel mezzo del camin di nostra vita e mi retrive per una selva oscura che la derita via eratas samarita. So the rhymes go on. Um, oscura was B. It was the middle line. What's the first line of the second stanza? Ahi quanto a dir qual ere e cosa giura. Obscura. Obscura. So A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D. It's going to go on like that. So in, a, in an amazing way, what Dante had... He showed us a stanza form that remains absolutely constant while it's moving. In one way, it expresses the paradox of who God is. Okay. Now, this is the. By the way, this is the book we're going to do after Dante. So, I'm just going to show. You. It's this thick. It's this. It's just not a big. But this is philosophic. Boethius is going to take all of Aristotle, all of Plato. He's going to synthesize them in one of the most important books of the Middle Ages. Call it um, consolation. Listen to this. Listen to this. Um, this is in book three, the, mid, the middle of um, the consolation. The form of the divine substance is such that it does not spread out into outside things or take up into itself anything from them. It does not spread out into outside things. God isn't just here and he creates a tree and from outside 
project something into it. God is both transcendent, outside of his creation, and absolutely imminent in everything he created. Now we came across this, if this sounds surprising, remember the wind hover. Dante looked at that wind hover flying in the sky, and what did he see? And, and, and air pride here buckle a million times told love there. In that moment when that wind hover hovers and everything breaks, he saw in that moment an instance of the crucifixion. Every fire that goes out, every farmer that plows, you remember plowed on Syrian? He was finding God everywhere. How could it be otherwise? If God created this world, if you're going to write a story, some of you guys pick up a story and write a story. Let it be a piece of fiction. One you can ask Mark to read. <laughs> Are you going to say that you're not everywhere present in that work, even if there's nothing resembling you? It, it expresses you. In some, I mean, it goes to your point, or Carl's point. It, it, it's an expression of who you are. God is present in everything. The, 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 the princess of the Trinity is present. I gave you one of Thomas's. I'll, I'll bring it back next week. God's present in everything in creation. He's outside of it and hidden in everything in creation. How could it be, how could it be otherwise? So he says, the form of the divine sense is such that it does not spread out into outside things or take up into itself anything from them. As Parmenides said, pagan philosopher, like the mass of a sphere well-rounded in all ways, here's the point, it rotates the moving sphere of the universe while remaining itself unmoved. Where did we hear about this before? Those of you who have been with us for a while? Dante and Eliot. Those of you who did Eliot, the steel point was the central image of the four quartets. It was the one thing that united them all. Here's where Eliot got it. This is Boethius. Boethius is trying to distinguish between perpetuity, perpetuity and eternity. Perpetuity and eternity. One he calls fate, things can't be other than they are, and one he calls eternity and freedom. Okay? We know that certain things are determined. We know that. But we also know that we have a freedom independently of those determinisms. Um, here's what he says. Fate is the ever-changing when the disposition in and through time of all the events which God has planned in his simplicity. Everything, therefore, which comes under fate is also subject to providence. How could it not be? God made it all. The subject to which fate itself is subject, but certain things which come under providence are above the chains of fate. These are things which rise above the order of change ruled over by fate in virtue of the stability of their position close to the Supreme Godhead. The closer somebody gets to God, this is our belief in the saints, the closer one approach, approaches God, the greater a share in his freedom that separates him from the rest of the world. It's why people get outraged at saints because what they do calls into question everything that they believe. The saints are not bound by those things the way most people are. The inmost one comes closer to the simplicity of the center while forming itself a kind of center for those set outside it to revolve around. The circle furthest out rotates through a wider orbit and the greater its distance from the individual, individual center point, the greater the space it spreads through. Anything that joins itself to the middle circle is brought close to simplicity 
and no longer spreads out widely. In the same way, whatever moves any distance from the primary intelligence becomes enmeshed in ever stronger chains of fate. And everything is the freer from fate, the closer it seeks the center of things. And if it cleaves to the steadfast mind of God, it is free from movement and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate. The relationship between the ever-changing course of fate and the stable simplicity of providence is like that between reasoning and understanding. We reason why in order to come to a conclusion. We understand something. At that, it's at that point we say, aha, I see. Reasoning gets us there. Reasoning is movement. Understanding is rest. We can say, aha, I see. I know I'm trusting all of us have had those moments where we go, aha, I see. I think I'm right in that, right? When we have those moments, don't all of us feel a quiet? We just go, yes, I see. You call it the aha moment. Yeah, I mean, how, you know, I think most of us had those moments. You just feel like your soul rests. Like all the anxieties or troubles disappear. The relationship between the ever-changing course of fate and the subtle simplicity of providence is like that between reasoning and understanding. Now here's where, this, this is what we did with Elliot. Between that which is coming into being and that which is, between time and eternity, or between the moving circle and the still point at its center. When we get to the... When we get to the two-thirds of the way through the Paradiso, Dante's going to look back at the earth, and according to his senses, he's going to see the prima mobile, closest to God, moving really fast. Every, every circle moving less and less fast until you get to the center, which is earth and death. It's not moving at all. He looks in Beatrice's eyes, who sees God, and when he turns and he looks in her eyes, what he sees at the center is a still point moving so fast, it's still. And every circle outside is moving increasingly slower. Why? Because he's seeing God present in everything as a still point in everything in nature. If you just quickly take that, can you hand that? That kind of the, the hand up, dog? Yeah. Let me just read this very quickly. Those of you who did the four quartets, there should be a hat. Take your hand out. These are just these are just sections that we've gone over. Those of you who did Elliot. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor towards. At the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and present are gathered. If we believe in God, if we believe in God, how can we look at the wild turmoil of the events that make up our lives without knowing somewhere in them God is present? And I've said this since we did the Odyssey. You know that the, the temptation for all of us is, is either to live in the wounds of the past, we carry our wounds, or we live in a hope. But we do not live in the present moment because to do that is, is the action of a saint. To, 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 to stand there in simplicity with God means letting go of all the stuff, the wounds, getting... You know, not escape, it means living fully in the present moment. Now hold on to that thought for just a second. 
Where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say there, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that's to place it in time. Because for Eliot, God in eternity is always present in every present moment. Now hold on to those two things, just for a second. Words move, music moves, only in time, but that which is only living can only die. Words after speech reach into the silence. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness. As a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness. Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts, not only that, but the coexistence, or say that the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there, before the beginning and after the end, and all is always now. Now, it sounds like, I mean, you could say it's just jumble. If God is, um, I'm, I'm going to pick this up again, but if God is, it means he loves, it's complete. He was there before the beginning, he created it. He will be there at the end. If he made his creation, he's always here. One of the arguments of this course is, do we see God around us all the time? Or do we miss him? Every lyric, almost every lyric I've read has had the end of trying to show that God is present in ways we don't see. Um, so, in, here's what, um, if, you, if you read my, this is, a, it's a page taken from my book. Um, Every work of art, according to T.S. Eliot and thinkers who think about this, every work of art, according to them, is called autotelic. It has ends in itself, autotelic. It has its end in itself. What's the purpose of a bank sign outside of a bank? Its end is in itself. No, it's got a practical end. It wants to get you into the bank. 90% of what goes on has an end outside of itself. And it's got a practical, utilitarian quality. Poetry does not. I've been saying this from the beginning. Poetry has an end in itself. We're meant to rest in the beauty or truth that we see there, to enter into that there, to have a rest there. So the still point is always in some ways present in poetry. That's one of the things that poetry does. It helps us to experience that, that rest or quiet. It doesn't point, it's not, it's not didactic. It doesn't have its end outside of itself. It's not didactic. Um, it's a, it's a piece of beauty, like a painting or a piece of music. You enjoy it while you hear the music when it's lasting. Here's the interesting thing. Boethius defines perpetuity, perpetuity this way. Um, per, perpetuity is a, is a succession of present moments. Now hold on to this. It's a succession of present moments. You no sooner have one when it's gone and you're already on to the next one, right? That's what time is in this world. That's what time is. But we're no sooner here than it's gone, and we're already into the next moment. Shakespeare calls the present moment in one of his poems, Eternity's Lackey. Lackey. Servant. Every present moment is a parody of eternity. Because in that moment, you know that, if, if we have a moment of joy, what do we want to do? Hold on to it. Stay there. No? Mm -hmm. and, but if an ultimate joy is greater than that, which is what our church says, 
And not only do we want to hold on, but we want to risk going on. But that present moment implies the present ongoing of eternity. Except it doesn't fade. You know, it's not lost in looking forward. But that present moment is like an imitation of an eternal present. So in every implied in every present moment is this still point, God's there. Because his love is present everywhere. And it doesn't move. It's always there. We're either moving towards it or away. So what's in hell is a turning away from love. It's a restless, unsettled, anxious state. People are in that state. They will never find rest. They will never find a completion. We know, I think, most of us, when we have a pleasurable moment, we want to hold on to it. We want to extend it. It's like it's an indication of something to come. There is nothing to come for the people in hell. They're driven, absolutely driven. They will not ever know satisfaction, ever. They will go on into misery. Purgatory is taking that sinful state and wanting more and doing what a person has to do to return to God. So right at the, right at the heart of all of the, that we've been reading is this notion of a trinity and a still point. A complete love that is rest in itself. God doesn't need us. He, he, he's completed himself. What he wants us, what he wants, what he, what he, if, I mean, the love of us is, because he created us in love, is that one day we share in that love. To step outside of this tormented condition into his love. What, we see, what we've been experiencing in hell is the opposite of that. There's no rest, there's no satisfaction, there will never be. They use each other as objects to gratify appetite, and they will never be gratified. We've seen that level after level after level after level. So this is a prelude to the to the purgatorio and the forward movement of love. And the the, terse, the terza rima rhyme form is <laughs> is an amazing illustration. It's like an intimation of the Trinity, that it keeps giving us the same thing again and again while moving us forward. It's a stunning Reinstein. So, okay, I, I meant to get through this. We will do, we will do, we'll do fraud. Level, level eight and level nine both next week. The end of, we're doing, we're finishing the Inferno no matter what next week. <laughs> promise, I promise. Okay. There's, there's the voice of realism in the class. Promise. He only says that because he knows. <laughs>